Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. Um, so today we're going to be reading from Exodus. Um, we'll just get into the Bible readings now. Uh, the first is Exodus 20, verse 17. So quite a short one. So Exodus 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not cover your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Short and sweet. The second um, reading is from 1 Timothy chapter 6, uh, verses 3 to the end. I'll give you guys some chance to find that. So that's 1 Timothy chapter 6, 3 to the end. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived in the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is a great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from that faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Jesus Christ, who is in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is blessed and sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen and can see, to him be the honor and glory and eternal domain. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us everything to enjoy. They are to be good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of what is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid their irrelevant babble and contraindications of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be to you. Amen. And here's Jacko. Amen. Thanks, Ruth. Uh, Good morning. Nice to see you uh, this morning. If you haven't, if you don't know who I am, I'm Jacko, Simon Jackson, uh, lead pastor here at City Light Church, North Adelaide. Uh, nice to see some faces back who I haven't seen for a long time. Great to see some faces I've never met before. I look forward to maybe having a chat after church today, at least after the formal part of our gathering. Um, if you are brand new to us, we're working our way through the Ten Commandments, uh, the, the ten words that God gave to his people Israel as they were coming out of Egypt on their way to the Promised Land. Uh, And today, you've joined us right at the end of our series, uh, Commandment number 10. 
uh, commandment number 10. As we were just reading the Bible there and we heard the kids kind of rowdy there, I thought that's what happens when you give a footballer, you know, kids' church. Um, you know, he's going to run them around in that room, I reckon. So uh, anyway, it's exciting. Um, we are, yeah, we're in this commandment um, and we're thinking about covetousness. There's a, a, a phrase that I heard once which was, you know, human beings, we're made just a little bit lower than the angels and yet we spend so much of our times trying to keep up with the Joneses. Um, we're thinking today about covetousness, um, and that might be something completely new to you. Uh, but I wonder, um, here's a statement, I hope, on the screen coming up. Here's a statement. I want you to finish the statement. You don't have to yell it out. You don't have to talk to your neighbor next to you. You don't have to confess or anything like that. But um, here's a statement. If only I had blank. If only I had blank X then I'd be happy. If only I had blank, then I'd be happy. I wonder what you'd put in that little spot, that little blank space. Um, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's, uh, if only I had a new job, if only I had a new set of friends, if only I had a, that person's personality, if only I had that person's house, car, friends, wife, husband, whatever it was. I wonder what you'd put in there. Um, That's just to get us thinking as we come to this subject of covetousness today. Let me lead us in a prayer, and then we'll get into the Word this morning. Father, we thank you for this time uh, to think again on your Word. Soften our hearts afresh, um, or perhaps for the first time, Father, this morning, help us to recognize our need for your grace and your mercy Father, may we, as we think about your word in the power of your Holy Spirit this morning, may we appreciate Jesus, your son, even more than we did when we first arrived this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we do come to the last in our series in the Ten Commandments, and I hope if you've been here for you know, all ten or most of the ten, I hope you've actually enjoyed this series, The Good Life. I think I've heard some really good feedback from people that it's been challenging, um, encouraging. Um, they've sort of like, fed back to me that they've seen things in these commandments perhaps they haven't kind of quite seen before, um, seen the, the breadth of them, the beauty of them, the challenge of them, perhaps like they haven't before. And the last of the 10 words is on this subject of coveting. Um, Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. Um, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And I bet you're going, yes, I've always wanted to challenge that issue of, you know, my neighbor's ox and donkey, like I've been thinking about them or, you know. But here we are, Exodus chapter 20 and verse 17. Um, I thought it'd be really helpful just as we start this morning to just define a few of the, me- the terms in this particular co- uh, commandment. Um, we sometimes read the commandments go, oh yeah, I've heard that before, but probably good to define a couple of the terms, find some meaning in some of the words. So the first word there you'll see is the word covet, um, underlined on the screen. Covet, to covet is to desire strongly, uh, to yearn for, to take pleasure in. That's what the word actually means. On its own, it's actually a really neutral word. It means to desire. That's what covet means. Uh, But it can be, obviously, have a negative sense, you know, selfish, lustful desires. I can move in that sort of realm of selfish gratification, um, self-gratification. But it can also be used in a positive sense, uh, chosen, choice, desirable. The word simply means, on its own, to desire, to yearn for strongly. 
The word neighbour on the screen, the word neighbour, uh, means um, yeah, more than just like the person living next door to you. I live on Marion Place in Prospect. It's more than the person living next door to me. It's even more than just the people who live down my particular street or your street. To the Israelites, God's chosen people to whom these commandments were first given, um, neighbour was really like your fellow Israelite, um, your friend. Then, like Jesus turns up, God in the flesh turns up, and he says, he takes the word neighbor in the parable of the Good Samaritan, you might be familiar with that, and turns the noun into a verb and says, your neighbor is anyone to whom you should be neighborly, pretty much anyone. The word house, so covet, to desire, neighbor, kind of anyone. The word house, it's not simply like, you know, bricks and mortar and a roof. Um, It's household. So it's everything in a person's kind of household. So their spouse or their children or their servants or their ox and donkey and animals and iPhones and iMacs and i-whatever and, you know, and their business as well. Like everything that kind of is connected to them, household. So the commandment is about coveting that which doesn't belong to you, that which belongs to your neighbor. So it's actually slightly different to all the other commandments we've looked at so far. It's, it's actually an internal thing, right? It's actually challenging us. It's like a spiritual commandment opposed to a sinful action. So we've had no murder, no adultery, no stealing, no lying. They're all actions that you can take. But no coveting is an, is an attitude of the heart. It's an internal thing. It's, it's an attitude of the heart. It's an attitude of the mind that you have within yourself. It's not, only, it's not the only command that's a bit like it. Um, Tran, while we were at online church, preached on the commandment to honour your father and your mother. That's actually a similar one to this one. It's an attitude, not so much an It's more than an action. Um, It shows, as Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, that sin is a matter of the heart, not simply just what we kind of do, taking an action. It may, you know, I may not have done something, but if I wished I had, it's as good as having done it, right? It's a heart thing. In part, that's what Jesus said about evil, didn't he? That evil comes from within. That's what defiles us, not what's outside of us. So coveting is a private sin. It's a, often it's a personal struggle in our hearts and in our minds, seemingly hurting no one but yourself, right? But in fact, it's just as sinful as anything else we do. It's quite serious. Also, though, this commandment is quite specific, but it's also really general. Um, specific in that it says, right, um, there's particular things that we're not to covet in our neighbor's house. So the list we have is wife, servants, donkey, ox, animals, but the command's also general, general in two ways. Here it is. The first way it's general, did you notice the end of the the commandment? Or anything else in your neighbor's house. So it's specific, not the donkey, not the ox, not the, you know, the the wife or the spouse or that sort of stuff, but it's anything else. So it's, you know, it's it's not that you can sort of say, oh, look, it's okay, my neighbor's got a new dog. You know, it's a really cute little puppy. I can covet that because it's not an ox or a donkey. You know, that's not what the commandment's about. Anything in your neighbor's house we are not to covet. But secondly, it's general because this sin of coveting lies behind pretty much all of the other sins that we get up to. So you wouldn't steal unless you coveted first. 
You wouldn't commit adultery unless you first coveted. Um, and this is where I think of, you know, some, well, not so great stories in the Bible. Um, you think of King David, right? Great King David, leader of God's people. King David, you might want to know, coveted a woman named Bathsheba, who was the wife of Uriah, his neighbour. And because of David's coveting, he committed adultery. He stole her from Uriah. And then he had Uriah murdered. The one sin of covetousness led to many other sins. You see, coveting opens the door wide to a whole dictionary of sins, yeah? James, the brother of Jesus, in the New Testament says this, what causes wars and what causes fighting amongst you? You, have, you don't have it, so you covet. And because you covet, you then fight with each other. Coveting other people's possessions lies at the, the heart of the many of the sins that we're engaged in. We had it just read before, 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul the Apostle writes to us and says, here's the danger of coveting money. He writes this, those who want to get rich, those literally who desire or covet to get rich, fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. I think we heard this just a couple of weeks ago. You know, that's often a misquoted kind of phrase from Paul, isn't it? Um, That money, you know, is the root of all evils. But Paul's really clear to say it's the coveting of, the lusting for, the, the, the desire for money that is at the root of all evils. It's coveting that's the problem, not money. However, the problem is not simply coveting, right? It's the fact that we covet the wrong things. So the commandment actually doesn't really follow the the, the pattern of the other commandments, right? So we have like no murder in the original language, no adultery, no stealing, no coveting, no coveting of your neighbor's house. Say it with me, no coveting of your neighbor's house. That's what makes coveting wrong. It's not that you covet, right? Coveting in itself is not wrong. It's that we covet the wrong things. There's nothing wrong with coveting your own house. There's nothing wrong with coveting your own car. Although, you know, Georgie in our midst, not to pick on Georgie, but she's got a really beautiful looking Mustang out the front. And uh, every time she pulls up, I'm like, oh, I'd love that. No, um, you know, um, not the colour. No, no, it's fine. No, no. Bazzy and I have this thing, I really like Mustangs, um, you know, and Bazzy's like, oh, Dad, one day I'm going to buy one for you. And I'm like, oh, that's so nice. Like a, a little one, that's what he said, a model. And I'm like, okay, it's a start, it's a start. Um, there's nothing wrong, I mean, there's nothing wrong with coveting your Mustang, but I don't want to covet yours. You know, um, there's, there's, there's nothing wrong with coveting your own wife, desiring your own husband or your animals, I mean, Jesus desired food, didn't he, when he was tempted in the wilderness? He desired sleep when he was on the boat in the storm. Jesus desired a drink when he was dying for us and the sins of the world on that old rugged cross at Calvary. There's nothing wrong with desire, but we must desire the right things, not the wrong things. And it's wrong, says the word of God, to desire your neighbor's house, wife, servants, animals, they're anything. But here's the question. 
And get ready, because I'm going to get you to turn to the person next to you, even though you're 1.5 metres from each other. You might have to talk a bit more loudly. But here's the question. If this sin of coveting is an internal heart matter for me, a private sin, an inter- an in- in- not eternal, an internal wrestle or desire that maybe I never put into action, that I never mention to anyone, what's wrong then with coveting? What's wrong? If I'm not hurting anybody, if I'm not acting against God, what's so wrong with coveting my neighbour's Mustang or house? I want you to turn to the person next to you and for about two and a half minutes, I'll give you a bit of time for this one, um, turn to the person next to you and say, get in quickly, right? You know, say, what do you think's wrong with coveting? Because then you can listen to them. No, have a quick turn to the person next to you. What's, what's so wrong with coveting? If it's this internal thing that doesn't really maybe even impact anyone else, what's so wrong with it? Have a quick chat. I'll come back in a couple of minutes. <laughs> Sounds like you could all stand up in here and give a sermon, I reckon. You've got heaps to say. Um, and uh, you know, I had a quick chat to Andy, and I think Andy's onto some good stuff. Um, what's, what's, I won't hear back from you. What's, what's wrong with coveting your neighbour's stuff? Well, I think there are actually many things wrong with coveting our neighbour's things. Uh, we could spend the rest of the day talking about them. But here are just three that I want to just bring before you this morning. Uh, that I think are intertwined and interconnected. And the first one is this. It's, um, what's wrong with coveting? It, it, it shows a lack of trust in God. It shows a lack of trust in God. Um, a, lack in tr- a lack of trust in God that God can provide everything you need and that he will provide whatever is good for your neighbour. Um, God will not deny his children anything that they need. He will not deny any of us anything we need if we're in his family. James says we do not have because we don't ask and we, we ask and we don't receive because we wish to spend on our passions because we're in love with this world as well as with God. You see, what's good for my soul, God will provide. What's good for your soul, God will provide for you. And so we should rejoice with each other. We should grieve with each other, but we must never be jealous of each other or envious of each other or desire or covet other people's possessions. All our possessions come from our Heavenly Father. He knows what we need before we ask. You know what? And He cares for your well-being. He cares for my well-being more than we do. When we covet our neighbor's possessions, right, we're actually insulting our Heavenly Father and His provision for us. The second thing that's wrong with covetousness is that it exposes our dodgy attitudes to our neighbors. How can I love my neighbor as myself if all I want is his or her possessions? Jealousy and envy will eat out my heart. Not only my heart, but it will also eat out my relationships with my neighbours. For when I'm coveting my neighbour's stuff, when I'm coveting my neighbour's house, I haven't got their welfare at at the centre of my heart. I'm not serving my neighbour for their benefit. Even if I am serving them, right, I'm tempted to hope to benefit from serving from them rather than just simply serving them. I'm not concerned for their well-being. I'm not rejoicing with them that God has blessed them. But in envy and jealousy and rivalry, I'm slowly destroying my love for them. You see, you have to trust people to have friends. And you can't trust people who are covetous. Which is why wealthy, rich people find it so difficult to have friends. There are many quotes about riches and friendships that I kind of like. 
Here's a couple. Money makes you wealthy, but friends make you rich. Money will buy you a bed, but not a good night's sleep. A house, but not a home. A companion, but not a friend. But the one I like the best comes from a guy named Spike Milligan from The Goons. He says this. Money can't buy you friends, but you do get a better class of enemy. I kind of like that. You know, we'll talk about that later. Rich people can never trust friendship as long as there are sinful people who covet their wealth. Poor people can never have a friend or be a friend as long as they covet other people's possessions. You see, coveting destroys relationships. Which brings me to the third problem with coveting. Satisfaction. Or probably better still, the lack of it. Dissatisfaction. If I don't trust God and his generous provisions for me, if I can't rejoice, if I don't rejoice in my neighbor's wealth and prosperity, then with a heart filled of envy and jealousy and rivalry, I will live in ongoing dissatisfaction about my life. You know what? We need to learn contentment. As the Apostle Paul learns it, he writes to a bunch of Jesus followers in the first century in Philippi. He says this, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any way and in every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. And we hear that and go, I want that. I want that. Content when I have plenty. Content when I'm in need. And there's the key, but the key to that learning of Paul is that last phrase, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. The key to contentment is knowing and trusting our heavenly Father who provides every good thing for us that we will need. Learning both contentment when we're in need, learning contentment when we are in plenty. Because having more doesn't all of a sudden make you content. Having more makes you discontent. You know, what's that study they did or that sort of old commercial where people, they ask people, you know, how much more money do you need? Just a little bit. Just a little bit more. You know, never in human history, right, has there been a nation as wealthy as ours. We have more than anybody really has ever had. And you can argue that we have almost more than anyone else in the whole world. I don't know if we're the first or the second with the highest median income in the world. We are so wealthy and yet are we content and satisfied? I would argue that my grandparents and my great-grandparents who lived through the Depression and through two world wars are probably more content and satisfied than I am. We don't gain contentment by owning more things, but by learning to be content with whatever God has given you and me. As many of you know, um, I'm a... I'm a Richmond Football Club fanatic. You know, there's like Jesus and then there's Rich. No, um, I love the Richmond Football Club. One of the things I love about the Richmond Footy Club is many things to love about the Richmond Football Club. I could talk to you about that after church today. But one of them is they have this kind of we don't support gambling kind of policy. That's behind. So none of the club, that they, none of the works of the club, none of the money that comes into the club is sourced from any gambling. Um, I kind of love that. And yet I've noticed, I don't know if, you know, if you're not a football fan, apologies for this, but um, during, you know, we've just, we're in the midst of COVID-19, right? And millions of people around the world have lost their jobs. People are losing all kinds of things. And yet one of the things I've noticed with the AFL coverage is they are pushing you know, sports betting like they've never pushed it before. 
Vulnerable people, you know, pushing gambling, pushing gambling. That's not the Richmond Footy Club, but the AFL in general. Now, I'm not a gambler, right? But, but if I were given lottery tickets, you know what I'd do with them? I'd throw them in the bin. If you've, if you've been thinking for a while about, I really want to get Simon a present. You know, he's such a lovely pastor. I should get him something. I'll get him a lottery ticket. Don't. Because I'll chuck it in the bin. You know why? Because I'm content with what I have. And dreaming of winning lotto will only cause discontent to grow in my heart. You know what I'll do? I'll, I'll sit there waiting for the newspaper to come out so I can check the numbers. I'll sit there between dodgy shows on Channel 9, waiting for the balls to drop. You know that, that moment, you know, and you're waiting for the supplementary numbers to come. <gasps> you know, maybe I'm going to get that Gold Coast dream home. I'll get the Porsche. I'll get the Mustang. You know, I'll get the launch. I don't want to spend my life thinking about that stuff. But the problem with gambling is not the taking of a risk. We take risks every day. You're taking a risk sitting on these chairs in the Estonian centre. You took a risk getting in your car to drive to church today. You take a risk all the time walking across the road. The problem with gambling is really different. It's threefold. The first thing with gambling, right, it, it's desiring possessions that are not yours. You're desiring to win other people's things. The second problem is, right, you're actually taking from your neighbour, not contributing, although the rates of winning the lottery these days are so ridiculous that you probably are contributing to your neighbour's you know, good because you, you'll never win it. But third, third, here's the killer, right? Third, it teaches me that money and possessions are all that matters in life. You see, without gambling, right, horse racing is a waste of time. Without gambling, footy matches kind of can be a little bit meaningless. You know, when you've got to gamble to enjoy the enjoyments of life, the reality is possessions have possessed you and you are addicted to materialism. Covetousness, desiring my neighbour's possessions is anti-God, it's anti-neighbour and it's anti-self. Why? Because it teaches me to distrust God, it teaches me to be envious of my neighbour and it leads me to be discontent with my life feeds my dissatisfaction, and it leads to a dictionary of sins. So what's the alternative to coveting? What's the alternative to coveting? I think one of the cool things about this series we've done in the Ten Commandments, The Good Life, is that we've seen so much positive stuff as an alternative to what seemingly like these negative commands, right? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make idols, you know, no stealing, no adultery. But on the flip side is just this freedom to do so much good stuff. It's so great. We've seen that, you know, when you flip it around, we see what God really wants from us. You know, with don't murder, what do we do instead? We protect and we uphold peace. You know, with no adultery, we're called to be just faithful and keep our word. With don't stealing, Mark said, be radically generous. With don't bear false witness, we're encouraged to speak the truth, build each other up. What's the alternative then to not coveting your neighbor's house? Well, I've got four things. You're going far out. How long is this going to go for? You've got threes and fours and tens. Four things. Four things. What's the alternative to not coveting your neighbor's house? Four things. The first one is this, contentment and striving. 
contentment and striving. Now, at first glance, you say, whoa, Jacko, that sounds a little bit contradictory to me, contentment and striving. So, hang on, if I'm content, surely that means I'm not striving, and if I'm striving, surely that means I'm not content. What on earth are you talking about? I've just argued, right, for contentment. But here's the thing, right? Striving moves contentment out of fatalism into a responsibility to act. And you're going, Jacko, it's early in the morning. That sounds hardcore. Like, let me say it again. Striving moves contentment out of fatalism into a responsibility to act. You see, for many people, right, fatalism, contentment is the same as fatalism. You know, that sense of like, well, you know, if I've got to be content, this is just my lot, and I'll just suck it up, and, you know, that's just the way it is. I can't do much about it, so I'll just kind of get on with what I can do. The Bible doesn't think about contentment as it is like, in terms of fatalism. Contentment is not a fatalistic activity. Why? Because we've been created by God to act to act responsibly. We've been created by God in his image to subdue the world and to fill the world. We've been given responsibility as human beings, not simply to sit around and do nothing, but to actively care for God's world. You see, Stoicism, ancient Greek philosophy, and Buddhism, Eastern philosophy, condemn all human desire so as to avoid pain and disappointment in this life. So never desire anything, never want for anything, never like anything, never strive to own anything, you know, never strive to own any possessions. Uh, there was a guy named, I think it was Simon the Stylite, um, back in early kind of Christianity, um, not connected to me, but um, Simon the Stylite, who, who decided that Stoicism was the way to live. And so he built this enormous pole with a little board on the top and just sat on it. And he went, that's life. I'm like, that doesn't look like life to me, man. Like, you know, just remove all enjoyable things in life because if you connect yourself to anything pleasurable, then you're going to get hurt. So the best thing to do is sit on a pole and then you'll meet God pretty quickly, I reckon, if you do that because you'll probably run out of something to do. If you don't have pleasure or possessions, when things are taken away, they can't hurt you. If you so lower your estimations and expectations of this life right down to nothingness, then nothing will ever hurt you. That's, there's the Stoic and Buddhist solution to pain and suffering. No pleasure, no enjoyment. But the commandment is not no coveting. That would be a good Buddhist commandment. That would be a good Stoic commandment. But God's commandment is no coveting your neighbor's house, wife, ox, donkey, iPhone, everything. It's a different thing. It's not no coveting, but not coveting your neighbor's house. We just be content with our role by striving, not for our neighbor's possessions, but striving to be the rulers of the world that God has created us to be living under his authority. You know, what we should have as God's people, we should have a a godly discontent with the state of the world. And we should, therefore, so work with industry to improve the world and positively impact humanity, to look after creatures and responsibly care for the environment, to struggle with sin and overcome the disastrous effects of the fall, to desire, right, brothers and sisters, to covet a better world is a good thing. Coveting my neighbor's possessions, a bad thing. So strive. Be content, but strive. And that leads me to the second thing, right? We should covet the right things. 
We should covet the right things. Um, come with me to Colossians chapter 3. If you've got a Bible near you, come to Colossians chapter 3. It's in the second half of the Bible in the New Testament. Uh, it comes after Ephesians and comes after Philippians. Uh, Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1. Uh, Colossians chapter 3 verse 1. Paul the apostles written to these Christians at Colossae reminded them how good Jesus is, how loving God is, that they're alive in Jesus Christ. And then he writes this, Colossians 3 verse 1. So then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. I mean, brothers and sisters, there is a commandment to covet. Desire, long for, seek, pursue, own, possess. We are to covet the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Not my neighbor's stuff, but the stuff of God. I'm not to covet. I am, sorry, I am to covet. And what are the things we are to covet? Have a look at verse 12. Come down with me to verse 12. Therefore, chapter 3 of Colossians, verse 12, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. These are the things that we should seek. These are the things that we should covet, desire, and long for. For here are the things that we should be coveting, the things that the Spirit is at work in us, giving us the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Make those your ambitions in life. Make those the things that your heart desires, that your heart covets that your heart wants to own, that you want to possess, that you want to have as yours. For as Jesus commanded his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I mean, there's a command to covet. Covet the kingdom of God. Covet God's righteousness, not your neighbor's house. Which brings me to the third alternative to coveting, thanksgiving and rejoicing. Thanksgiving and rejoicing, for it flows from what is wrong with coveting in the commandment. It's thanks to God for his great provision and joy at his great provision that his great provision was so great for my neighbor that I can rejoice in God's generosity to others. Thanks to God for this amazing provision for me, but then an ability to rejoice with God's wonderful provision for others. You know, during the virch time or online church for us, you know, sort of the, 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 the drum beat kind of memory verse that we kind of had going was Philippians chapter 4 verse, um, and verses 6 and 7. You remember what Paul writes. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. You don't have to be anxious about anything. But in everything and every situation, make your request known to God with thanksgiving. You know, we are to be people of great joy because of God's great provision for us. And the things we don't have, we ask him for. And if they are for our good, then he will give them to us in abundance. 
And so we should always be asking with thankfulness in our hearts. Thanksgiving must be kind of a marker of us as God's people in this world. We must not be whingers and whiners and complainers all the time. Because our God has given to us generously whatever we need. And when I see my neighbour and I see their success, I should rejoice. So Paul wrote to Jesus' followers in Rome, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. So the joy of other people's success should fill our hearts with joy, with, with pleasure and enjoyment, and we should love like that. And yet again, we're driven by the commandments to love. And that's the, the fourth alternative to coveting my neighbor's house. Love. See, these commandments that God gave to his people long ago um, teach me two things. Teach us two things. Teach us to love God and to love others. It starts with a love for God in the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And it finishes with love for others in the 10th commandment and kind of moves between those two poles all the way through. But the two commandments, right, love God and love your neighbor, that simple summary is not enough. For the 10 commandments enrich that summary to love God and to love others. So when dealing with the commandment like, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, I come to see other aspects of love that I would never have thought of. I come to see that I should rejoice in my neighbor's house. Rejoice that it belongs to him and not to me. I should be thankful for the house that God has given me and be content with what I have because that's what God has given me at this time and be content and glad that he has given to my neighbour what they have. It's possible that I could work that out from the commandment, you know, love your neighbour as yourself, but I'm unlikely to work that out for myself. I'm unlikely to work it out in the way that the commandment forces me to work it out. And indeed, each commandment is like that. While each commandment can be summarized by the word love, each command gives a quality and a content to what that love is and could be. Without them, my understanding of love is impoverished. But here it's just enlarged. So where, where do we finish this series then on the Ten Commandments? How do we draw to a conclusion the last 11 weeks or so? Well, three things. Firstly, the Ten Commandments teach us about the character of God. That's the thing that I've been really impacted by, I think, that as you look at these Ten Commandments, we just see the character of God oozing out through them. They're not just a list of rules to stick on the wall. This is a picture of the God in whom we trust and whom we follow. They teach us about his desires for his people, about his ways of righteousness and living righteously in this world. Secondly, and I don't know if I'm the only person in the room who feels this, but the commandments make, make us feel guilty. They make us feel the guilt that is truly ours, for we've not loved God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. We've not loved our neighbours as ourselves. And as I go through each commandment, right, I'm reminded again of other ways that I've failed to love my neighbour as myself. I've either ignored to love what my neighbour has. That's probably better, right, than envying what my neighbour has or being jealous of what my neighbour has. Or I have envied or been jealous of what my neighbour has. 
But when have I rejoiced in what God has given my neighbour? The commandments teach me that I don't love my neighbour as I love myself. They teach me also that I don't love God with all my heart, soul, mind and my strength. And so what the commandments do is bring us back to the foot of the cross as sinners in need of forgiveness. The law doesn't save me. The law condemns me. And so the commandments bring me, bring us to the cross, asking for forgiveness, asking for mercy, asking afresh for grace. For they've taught me of my sinfulness and of God's righteousness. They've taught me for my, of my need for pardon and mercy. And thirdly, once saved by the cross of Christ and the mercy of God, once I've come to see that I'm not saved by my morality, I'm not saved by my good works, then the commandments teach me how to live the new life, the good life that God has saved and redeemed me to live and empowered me by the Spirit to live out, how to live as one of God's children, how to live as an ambassador of the kingdom and the king. That's what the commandments teach me. They teach me about God They teach me about myself, my need for the cross, my need for God's forgiveness. And then beyond, they teach me how to live. So where are you up to? Where are you this morning up to on those three stages? I mean, do you still, in your sinfulness, think you're okay with God? If that's the case, then you still need the Ten Commandments. Go back, read them again. The reality is you'll never be able to perform your way into God's good books by seeking to keep the Ten Commandments. I shared this a little while ago, I think in the Mark series, that when I was last in India, um, I was where I had gone to teach the Bible, we were doing a bit of uh, walk um, door knocking, so telling people about Jesus, that might terrify you, but walking into an apartment block and knocking on doors and the door opens and you sort of, hey, I'm here to tell you about Jesus. And um, one lady... Um, uh, opened the door and uh, we walked in and on the wall was this massive picture of Jesus. I've never seen a picture of Jesus so big in my life. Um, and, uh, and I said to her, we, we, I sort of said, oh, you know, like, this is the classic question that I used to ask, you know, if you died tonight, uh, would you be right with God? On what basis would God let you into, his, into heaven? And this lady said to me, um, I've kept the Ten Commandments. And I was like, really? You've kept them all? Absolutely, I've kept them all which then led to a wonderful conversation about the reality. We can't keep them ourselves. We can't do that. We cannot face God and live on the basis of keeping the Ten Commandments. Second, maybe this morning, are you ready to come to him for forgiveness? Because you've heard the Ten Commandments and you see your need. You know that you are actually covetous. You haven't murdered anyone but you are envious of others. You haven't stolen, but you covet. You haven't committed adultery, but you're jealous of others. If you break one commandment, you've broken them all. And you've heard it. You know you need forgiveness. And the only place to find that that forgiveness, friends, is by coming to the cross afresh, by finding forgiveness in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived out the law perfectly so that we can be forgiven. Jesus Christ lived the perfect life. He's taken your place. He's died for your forgiveness and risen to new life. 
And thirdly, if you've come to that, if you know that you're forgiven, you know that you're forgiven through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, now that you are changed and have come to new life, then, brothers and sisters, you'll want the Holy Spirit, yeah? To help and to guide, to strengthen and give you the ability to live the way of the Ten Commandments. For it's God's way to live. So where are you? Confident in your own morality? In need of forgiveness? Or are you living a new life? I'm going to give you just a moment in your quietness of your own heart just to come before God, reflect on what you've heard, and then I'll lead us in a prayer. So just take a moment. I'm going to lead us in a prayer and um, you may like to just uh, echo what I pray in the quietness of your own heart. Um, I'll go slow and maybe we can, this an opportunity for us just to pray together, but in that way. So I'll read a line and you can just reflect it in your own heart. And let's pray. Heavenly Father, I know that I am not worthy to be accepted by you. I don't deserve your gift of eternal life. I'm guilty of rebelling against you and ignoring you. I need forgiveness. Thank you for sending Jesus Christ, your son, to die for me, that I may be forgiven. Thank you that he rose from the dead to give me new life. Please forgive me, and by your Holy Spirit, change me, that I may live with Jesus as my Lord and my King. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church, or to donate to the work of City Light Church, North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church slash North Adelaide.